0: So tonight I'm going to talk about miracles, and many of you might think the miracle is the end of the retreat, <laughs> but that's not the kind of miracle I'm going to talk about. I started thinking about miracles five years ago. Actually, I was on retreat here on the three-month retreat, and. Um, I was trying to do metta practice. I say trying because I'm not very good at metta practice. And I was using the Dalai Lama as my object of metta because he's so easy. And I had a picture of the Dalai Lama by my bed. And it was glued. It was one of that that sticky yellow or blue tack, it's called. And it was stuck to the wall about where my knees were near my bed. And a couple of, about three nights after I'd been doing metta for the Dalai Lama, I'd actually felt metta for the first time in my life. And um, at about two in the morning, I suddenly was startled awake, and I felt this thud on my chest, like somebody had hit my chest. So I put my hand onto my chest, and the picture of the Dalai Lama was face down on my heart and i thought that was rather unusual since it was way down by my knees and had been stuck to the wall in an immovable position (laughs) so i was very moved by that and what was even more amazing was i went to go tell my teacher a few days later and they said with a twinkle in their eye you know stories like this happen all the time to yogis So I thought, hmm, (laughs) there's lots of miracles happening out there or unusual circumstances. So as someone who likes to collect stories, I got interested in collecting miracle stories. And unfortunately, I realized I can just share a few tonight because it's kind of like eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. If you hear too many, it starts to feel a little bit like too much. So... um, You can ask me for more later if you want. So what am I calling a miracle? The dictionary defines a miracle as a remarkable and welcome event that seems impossible to explain by means of the known laws of nature and is therefore attributed to a supernatural agency. I like the definition part that says a remarkable and welcome event. I think I started collecting miracle stories because um, they helped wake me up. They reminded me of the magic and mystery of life, which I feel I can never get enough of. And when I look at the stories I've collected, I've noticed there's actually two things in common and the Dalai Lama story reflects that. The first is something unknown happening. And the second is something that's related to interconnection. Pema Chodron has a saying that I like. She says, our practice is always stopping our mind. Our practice is always stopping our mind. I like that because Miracles stop my mind, and it helps me to remember just to wake up. It's about seeing things anew. And some of the miracles, they can be so small. You know, it, we can just go outside and see the color of the leaves differently. Or we can see a state of mind that we've never seen before or break a habit. And I really think on some level, those two are miracles. One of the points of this talk is we don't need something out of the ordinary like the Dalai Lama's picture falling on our heart at 2 in the morning to remember that life is always magically stopping our mind. The miracle is always happening right now. We just need to look and listen. Actually, I hope if there's only one thing you get out of this talk tonight, it's that the miracle is now. The idea of seeing everything as a miracle. Einstein said, there are just two ways to look at life. One is that nothing is a miracle, and the other is that everything is a miracle. That's why I practice to begin to see everything as a miracle. When really being present with the sunset this evening or the other day when the trees were all glistening with ice at dawn, no really seeing that the dumb is the miracle now. I'm going to talk about um, everyday miracles tonight and then have, there's a few stories of more unusual happenings. I'm gonna kind of weave them back and forth. All religious traditions actually have stories of miracles. It's one of the few things they all have in common. <laughs> and yes, even in Vipassana, there are miracle stories. <laughs> I mean, there's the text, in the Buddhist text, there's the Buddha having his ant fly through the air and dive into the earth, or the Buddha's ability to see past and future lives. And even there's contemporary stories of Vipassana teachers, um, both of who are dead but who lived within this century. Achan Man, he had incredible miracles that he did. One was he healed a whole village of uh, smallpox in Laos, just through metta, and then there's Obviously, many stories of Deepa Ma building a meditation hut in the sky outside of Menindra's window or walking through the door without opening it. But the important thing is not to see miracles as the powers of saints like the Buddha or Deepa Ma, but to see them as part of everyday life. The Tibetans have the phrase that you've probably heard, "Ama ho, isn't it amazing? that sense of learning to see everything as amazing. And the Buddha actually talked about this. He has a well-known saying. He said, The real miracle is the awakening of people's hearts and minds. The real miracle is the awakening of people's hearts and minds. It's, it's that simple and it's that deep. And that's what we're doing here, day by day, hour by hour, breath by breath. We're learning to awaken our heart and mind and see this miracle. So everyday miracles, uh, just for the purpose of the talk, I put the miracles into two groups, miracles of the body and miracles of the mind, of nama and of rupa, of rupa and of nama. What are some of the miracles of the body? From an evolutionary point of view, scientists have shown that our very existence on this Earth is a miracle. Paleontologist Stephen J. Gold said, the pathways that have led to our evolution are quirky, improbable, unrepeatable, and utterly unpredictable. Human evolution is not random, It makes sense and can be explained after the fact. But wind back life's tape to the dawn of time and let it play again and you will never get humans a second time. That's an amazing statement. (laughs) Wind back life's tape from the dawn of time and let it play again and you will never get humans a second time. We can't be repeated again. That's a miracle. There's also the karmic miracle, which you probably have heard ad nauseam about human birth. But for those of you who haven't heard it, the likelihood of human birth, it's like a blind turtle on the bottom of the ocean who comes up once every hundred years. And on the surface of this vast ocean is a small yoke, little ring, and the chances that the turtle will put its head through that yoke that's randomly floating on the ocean when it comes up once every hundred years, is the likelihood of a human birth. It's literally impossible to be a human being. <laughs> and yet, look around you. I mean, each one of us in this room got a human birth this lifetime. Despite fantastic odds, we're each experiencing a karmic miracle. So our evolution, our karma, our miracles, the fact that we're given another day of being alive is a miracle In the Jewish tradition, each morning, when they wake up, they sing a prayer, a song of gratitude for another day of being alive. It's this beautiful song that I really love, and it's translated as, Thank you, eternal spirit, for restoring the life within me with compassion. and they repeat it over and over again as thanks for another day, for the miracle of life. Meister Eckhart said, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would be enough. So the thank you is remembering all the miracles happening now. This week, a friend of mine's mother um, almost went blind. It was a freak situation and it happened suddenly and it's still not clear whether she'll um, regain any eyesight. Um, And she's been in bed now for five days with no vision and I've been reflecting on her and sending her metta And last night after the metta sit. I went outside and I looked at the night sky and it was filled with millions of stars and it was so beautiful and I just thought she can't see this. She might never be able to see this again and I just felt such gratitude for the gift of sight, for the miracle of sight. And then I went out And I was walking by the front lawn, and I thought, there's something written on the front lawn. (laughs) And I looked, and the word sangha was written in the snow, stamped in the snow. And I just started laughing and crying at the same time, just how beautiful it was to be able to see that and experience the miracle of seeing and the miracle of, of sangha and of living here at IMS. If the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would be enough. So the miracle of being alive, the miracle of being able to walk. When I was eight, I had to learn to walk all over again. I um, was very badly bitten by a dog, and um, it looked like it was developing gangrene, and they thought they were going to have to amputate my leg. Um, but after a number of months, it cleared up, thanks to a very wise doctor. And um, I remember to this day, I mean, it was 33 years ago, I remember taking that first step. And it it took incredible concentration, and it was so hard, but it was it was the most Wonderful step of my whole life. And I felt so grateful. And I felt it was a miracle. Thich Han says, walking with ease and with peace of mind on the earth is a wonderful miracle. Some people say that only walking on burning coals or walking on spikes or on water are miracles. But I find that simply walking on the earth is a miracle. Another miracle is being able to listen to this talk. When we think of it, it's amazing. I mean, there's these little bits of sound of noise coming your way and out of my mouth. And there, it's like this river of sound that's banging on your ear door. And then your mind's collecting the sound into piles. And it's heaping them up, and it's organ- organizing the piles into units, familiar units. And then it's processing those units and adding meaning and emphasis. And, and then it's moving them around and putting classes and categories. I mean, it's really amazing. <laughs> Just from little bits of sound hitting the ear door. So wonder we can understand each other at all. And each sense door is like this. I won't go into it like in the Burmese fashion, but uh, reflecting that each sense door has this miraculous mm, bits of pieces heaping up and coming together into something. But what gets really interesting is when you start to add the dynamic of interconnection. We're all affecting each other, and science can now prove it. A few weeks ago, Joseph gave us a handout, or Eloise gave it to us actually, of a medical report a friend had given on the heart, and qualities of the heart. And you probably will remember this finding that particular move me, the electricity generated by the heart can be detected and measured in the brain waves of another person when people are touching or near each other. So the heart can be measured in the brain by someone near you. So we've all been sitting very near each other for 12 days now. <laughs> and we live and work in the same building. That's a lot of electricity in each other's brainwaves. So there's a deep interconnection happening. There's a miracle happening now, and we're in it together, like it or not. It's like that word sangha stamped into the snow. On some level, it's stamped into each one of our hearts as we sit here together and live here. Okay, so what about the stories? Where are the stories? (laughs) So there's two stories here that really talk about the power of interconnection and that miracle. And they're both from a book by a psychologist who works with organ transplant patients. And these two stories are about the heart, but in his book he talks about how all the organ recipients, even kidney and liver, tend to have similar experiences. might go a bit over, by the way. This is called Glenda's Story. Oh my God, David, no, cried Glenda when she saw the bright lights headed straight for their car. As the squeal of the tires burning to grip the road became one with her own shrill shriek of helpless terror, she knew that she had lost her husband forever. Moments before the car crash Came, the car came crashing through the windshield. The couple had argued over something silly and had been sitting in resentful silence. They had had these little emotional scuffles before, but unlike in the past when they had their skirmishes, this was a time when there was no opportunity to apologize and reconfirm their love. Years later, Glenda sat with me in a dimly-lit hospital chapel. At her request, I had arranged a meeting between her and the young man whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart. The heart recipient and his mother were almost a half an hour late for the meeting, and I was ready to ask Glenda to leave. The issue of recipients meeting donor families is a very sensitive one, and I understood why the man might have changed his mind. As I stood and took Glenda's hand, she said, Oh, no. We have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him here come in the door 30 minutes ago. I felt my husband's presence. Please wait with me. Glenda is a practicing family physician. She is well-versed in bioscience and, as I do, admires the rigor and healthy skepticism of modern science. Now, however, the power of something that transcends what science calls common sense was tugging at her heart. David's heart is here, she added. I can't believe I'm saying that to you, but I feel it. His recipient is here in this hospital. That moment, the door opened, and the young man and his mother walked hurriedly down the center aisle of the chapel. Sorry we're late, the young man said in Spanish accent. We got here half an hour ago, but we couldn't find the chapel. After introductions and awkward attempts at humor about a heart-to-heart meeting, between the young wife with her husband's heart. The usually shy Glenda blurted out, this embarrasses me as much as it embarrasses you, but can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, uh, I mean, your heart? The man looked at me and then his mother, put his hand to his chest and finally nodded his head. As Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand and gently placed it on his chest. What happens? happen next transcends our current view of the brain, body, heart, and mind, but it has happened in various forms in the lives of those people and their family members who have experienced the awesome force of a life system of one person's being transplanted into another. Glenda's hand began to tremble and tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand hugged the young man to her chest, and all of us wiped tears from our eyes. Glenda and the young man sat down and silhouetted against the background of the stained glass window of the chapel, held hands in silence. Speaking in her heavy Spanish accent, the young man's mother told me, my son uses that word copacetic all the time now. He never used it before he got his new heart but after his surgery it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. (laughs) I didn't know what it means. (laughs) He said everything was copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. (laughs) Glenda overheard us. Her eyes widened. She turned toward us and said, that was our signal that everything was okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say that everything was copacetic. Our discussion about a magic word that seemed to reveal a code of the heart within him stimulated the young man to share story after story of changes he'd experienced following his transplant. Described by his mother as a former vegetarian and very health conscious, he said he now craves meat and fatty foods. (laughs) A former lover of heavy metal music, he said he now loves 50s rock and roll. He reported recurrent dreams of bright lights coming straight for him. Glenda responded almost matter-of-factly that her husband loved meat, was a junk food addict, had played in a Motown rock and roll band while in medical school, and that she too dreams of the lights of that fateful night. The real miracle is the awakening of people's hearts and minds. A second story. I recently spoke to an international group of psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers in a meeting in Houston, Texas. I spoke to them about my ideas about the central role of the heart in the spiritual and psychological life. During the question and answer session, psychiatrist came to the microphone to share an experience about one of her patients. The case had disturbed her so much that she struggled to speak through the tears. Sobbing to the point that the audience and I had difficulty understanding her, she said, I have a patient, an eight-year-old little girl, who received the heart of a murdered 10-year-old girl. Her mother brought her to me when she started screaming at night about her dreams of the man who had murdered her donor. She said her daughter knew who it was. After several sessions, I just could not deny the reality of what this child was telling me. Her mother and I finally decided to call the police, and using the descriptions from the little girl, they found the murderer. He was easily convicted with evidence my patient provided. The time, the weapon, the place, the clothes he wore, what the little girl he killed had said to him. Everything the little heart transplant recipient reported was completely accurate. As the therapist returned to her seat, the audience of scientifically trained and clinically experienced professionals sat in silence. I could hear sobbing and saw tears in the eyes of doctors in the front row. Instead of commenting on the story, I asked the audience if I could lead them in prayer, a prayer in honor of our spiritual connection as a family. Taking a moment to honor the miracle of our interconnection. so much bigger than we realize. So those are some of the miracles of the body. What about miracles of the mind? There's the miracle of the mind when it's focused and present. Most psychic powers are miracles of concentration and focus. Deepama could walk through walls through entering concentrative states. Actually, it's interesting, um, now everybody can do, anyone can do a version of this. I have a friend who, uh, he's disabled and he, he's a computer specialist and he works with bringing technology to quadriplegics. And he told me about an amazing new technology advance. Well, it's new to the civilian world. It's been in the military technology for a while. But it's the ability to use, um, to put a headband on one's head and use, it reads uh, thought patterns and allows you to move objects on a computer screen without ever touching the screen. So through thoughts alone, there's an ability to manipulate images on the computer the guy who developed this was an airplane pilot, and he, um, he developed this headband so he could pilot a plane without ever touching the controls, just through using his thoughts. And my friend told me about the computer program that's used as training for this device. And there's this whole rack of wine bottles. And the idea is to move a bottle out of the rack and over to a table, that's on the screen. And he says, the minute you lose your concentration, your focus, the bottle like falls and breaks (laughs) on the computer screen. He said, it's really, really hard. You know, just the minute you're pulling it out, if if your mind wanders at all. So modern technology is helping us See the miracle of the focused mind. Focus of mind doesn't always involve technical types of miracles but it, or psychic power types of miracles, but it can involve healing and connection. I think the two stories I read are somewhat about that. Metta is like this. The Buddha would survey the world every morning to see who was suffering and in need, and he did that through deep listening. The divine ear and the divine eye. Listening for the cries of the world. There's a Native American healer that says, Medicine people do not know magic, they know how to listen. Medicine people do not know magic, they know how to listen. And listening deeply is the interconnection, and that is the miracle. I know you've heard a lot of Mary Oliver this retreat, but <laughs> I, there's, um, in her journal writings, there's a really nice story that kind of combines this combination of the ordinary and the extraordinary. Once I went to the woods to find an almost unfindable bird, a blue grosbeak, and I found it a rough deep blue, almost black, with a heavy beak. And it was plucking one by one the humped pale green caterpillars from the leaves of a thick green tree. Then it vanished into the shadows of the leaves, and in the same moment from the crown of the tree flew a western bluebird, a little aqua thrush of the mountains hundreds of miles from its home. It's a moment hard to top, but I can. Once, I came upon two angels. They were standing quietly, keeping guard beside a car. Light streamed from them, and a splash of flames lay quietly under their feet. What is one to do with such moments, such memories, but cherish them? Who knows what is beyond the known? And if you think that any day the secret of light might come, would you not keep the house of your mind ready? Would you not cleanse your study of all that is cheap or trivial? Would you not live in continual hope and pleasure and excitement? There are just two ways to look at life. One is that nothing is a miracle, and the other is that everything is a miracle. And when we listen and show up like Mary Oliver does, amazing things can happen. Another story. I ran across this story. It's, it's about an actress that does improv theater And this story is an example of what can happen when we open and listen. The year was 1976. I was performing in Ann Arbor. I had asked the presenters to create a set within which I would improvise That evening, the set they created included a Raggedy Ann-like doll, which was lying on the floor downstage center. Early on, the doll drew my attention. I named her Alice. Within the first 15 minutes of the improvisation, Alice died. The remainder of the show focused on how others in her life responded to her death. As I was bowing at the end of my show, I noticed three women sitting on the floor near where Alice had been lying. While everyone else clapped, they were completely still. Later, they came to see me backstage. Through their crying, they told me that a year ago, that very night, their mutual and dear friend Alice had died. Before my performance, they had gone out to dinner together to honor her passing. A shock went through my body and left me trembling. The territory of embodied improvisation that I had just visited had implications beyond my comprehension. Anything can happen at any time if we show up and we listen. So the miracle of the mind when it's focused, the miracle of the mind when it's mindful. Again, the Buddha, the real miracle is the awakening of people's hearts and minds. The real miracle is the ability of the mind to see through itself. When you think of it, it's amazing. The mind can look at itself. The mind can reflect on itself. The mind can change itself. I can't think of anything in the body or natural world that can do this. And it's definitely a miracle. Self-reflection is a miracle unique to human birth. And although self-reflection can drive us nuts sometimes, it's one of those things we could spend our whole life saying thank you for. Because it allows us to find a way out of samsara, which is a miracle. Way back when, Annie talked about the endless rounds of rebirth. So being able to find a way out is truly a miracle. The miracle of mindfulness can also be seen each time we return from being lost in a thought. I think of all the times today you've been lost in a big, juicy thought. Engrossed, and yet the mind came back. It remembered to come back. You were 5,000 miles away in a chai shop in Delhi, or you were sneaking into the staff area to look at your mail, and you were snapped back into awareness. Oh, yeah, the breath, <laughs> the present moment. That's a miracle. And the many, many times it's happened today and it will happen in the future. And it happens when we aren't even trying. That's what amazes me. Or when we aren't even trying to try, it happens. Why does the mind come back at all? Could it be that mindfulness? is the default mode in our mind? Could it be that mindfulness is actually really the norm underneath all the squalor? Who knows? But it certainly seems like a miracle to me. The last miracle I'll talk about tonight is my favorite. It's the miracle that opening to pain brings transformation and well-being. The miracle that opening to pain can bring well-being. Who would have ever thought of that? Except the Buddha. So think of how many times you've seen this in your life. You were in a period of mild or deep suffering and you opened to it, decided to surrender, and something happened. Learning happened, freedom happened. I mean, this is the essence of the Buddhist teachings There is suffering, and if you go into that pain, you show up, you feel it, you learn from it, there will be the cessation of suffering. There will be transformation. The real miracle is the awakening of people's hearts and minds. But we have to show up and listen. There's actually so many stories about the miracle of opening to pain and it creating transformation. And the whole dark night of the soul, many spiritual saints, teachers have amazing stories. but it can happen to someone just down the street, too, or the guy that comes and gets our garbage on Mondays. You just never know. When I was living in rural New Mexico, there was a small town of about 100 people nearby, and there was a woman who reportedly had psychic powers. So a friend of mine and I went to see her. My friend had a question for her. And in answering my friend's question, she also told us about her life and how she developed psychic powers. And I thought, for me, that was more interesting than the psychic power itself. She was a rancher's wife in her 60s, and her husband worked in the copper mines. And she ran cattle during the day and raised their four or five kids. And for her whole adult life, she had been suicidally depressed and anxious and had no self-esteem. And one night she had, um, about when she was in her 50s, she had decided that she was going to kill herself after years of suffering. And she went into another part of the house, and before she was going to kill herself, she decided to pray And while she was praying, she couldn't really explain it, but something happened. And everything switched. And from that moment on, she never had a single depressed thought or feeling again. And she had psychic powers. All of a sudden, she could know things about the future. And her self-esteem completely changed, and she looked differently. And when she went into the bank in her local town, which had known her for 20 years, Um, They asked for her ID and made her sign a new signature card because her her handwriting had changed so much. So anything can happen to anybody, (laughs) even in a little town of 100 people. And her miracle happened when she surrendered to her pain completely. So there's one more story, this last story is my favorite because there's a little bit of an element of um, the cosmic joke in it, but it's also a nice example of how we're all helping each other in our pain. It's a great example of how the miracle is now. It's a story about a man named Ken Gobb. And Ken um, was and is a Christian minister. And he um, runs youth missions across the country. And at the time of the story, he'd been doing his ministry and missionary work for 15 years. And like many of the missionary types, his family was always doing it all with him. (laughs) They were on the road with him. And on this particular summer day, um, his family traveled by bus, and they would visit places—the youth missions across the country—in their buses. They had two buses. And on this one summer day, they were passing by Dayton, Ohio area, <clears throat> and Ken realized that he felt really down and depressed. He was having a doubt attack, and he was thinking, "Geez, you know, I've been doing this work for 15 years, and..." Maybe it's really not doing any good at all, and maybe there's no one that's being helped, and maybe I should get another job. And while he was feeling this and driving his bus, his son called him on the CB radio, who was in the other bus ahead of him, and he said, Hey, Dad, I'm feeling really hungry. Let's get some pizza. So Ken said, Sure, and his son, who was ahead of him, pulled off at the next exit. Ken followed behind and his son pulled into the first um, there was a pizza place right off the off ramp and he pulled into the parking lot and everyone piled out of the buses to go have pizza but Ken realized he really wasn't feeling hungry so he said, well, I'm going to stay behind and be, be alone and he was also feeling depressed and he, didn't, he wanted the alone time so when everyone went into the restaurant he stood outside the bus and um, kind of kitty-corner from the restaurant, there was a Dairy Queen and a gas station. So he went over to the Dairy Queen, and he got his soda, and he came back to the bus, and he was standing there drinking his soda, and all of a sudden, the phone um, that was part of the gas station, that was the phone booth outside of the gas station, started to ring. And he looked around, and he was looking for a see if there was a gas station attendant who might answer the phone, but nobody was around. And after about 10 rings, 15 rings, 20 rings, he thought, geez, maybe I'll go answer that phone. So he walked over to the phone, and he picked up the receiver, and there was an operator on the line, and she said, I have a person-to-person call for Ken Gobb. LAUGHTER <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> and he said, come on, this has got to be a mistake. And he said, this is, is this candid camera? Is this a joke? <laughs> and um, he was arguing with the operator about this. It's like, and she goes, well, are you Ken Gobb? And he goes, no. He goes, yeah, I am. You know, what is this? And all of a sudden the woman on the other line broke in and said, yes, yes, that's him. I recognize his voice. And it was a woman from Harrisville, Pennsylvania, and she was about to kill herself, and she'd prayed um, to God for help. And while she was praying, she had remembered seeing Ken on local TV like a week or so before. And she thought, well, he could help me. He, was, he seemed like a really nice guy. He could help me. But then she realized that she didn't have a phone number. She had no way of figuring out how to get a hold of him. So she went back to her suicide plan and started writing her suicide note. And all of a sudden, while she was writing the note, she had a flash in her mind of a phone number, which she wrote down because she was writing a note. (laughs) And a voice in her head said, this is the number to reach Ken at. So she got on the phone and made a person-to-person call. Mm. And, of course, Ken talked her out of committing suicide and he realized that they kept in connection for many years and he realized that the work he was doing did make a difference. So remembering that the miracle is now, we just need to show up and listen and answer the phone if it rings. (laughs) 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 Who knows what is beyond the known? And if you think that any day the secret of light might come, would you not keep the house of your mind ready? Would you not cleanse your study of all that is cheap or trivial? Would you not live in continual hope and pleasure and excitement? Let's sit. Thank you.